Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for all the blessings that you have lavished on us in Christ. As we consider those blessings now, grant us real spiritual insight that we will truly grasp what you have done for us and be transformed by our knowledge of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Head knowledge is insufficient without heart transformation. Head knowledge is insufficient without heart transformation. Uh, the late Christian uh, leader and author, Francis Schaeffer, spoke of a problem of which we are all too familiar, where the things of God remain in our heads, but they do not transform our hearts. We know about God, we're familiar with the Bible, we engage in ministry, and yet the truths of God's word never seem to penetrate our hearts, warming our affections, transforming our lives. Uh, Tim Keller points out some of the warning signs of this spiritual sickness. A weak prayer life, frequent struggles with feeling slighted by others, often being critical of other people and ministries, recurring bouts of self-pity, and anxiety and joylessness in both your life and work. Now, if you're like me and you recognize some of those warning signs in your own life, this passage this morning is so important for us. Because today we're reminded that the true knowledge of God is not simply knowing intellectual facts about God and the gospel, but we need to have those facts penetrate our hearts so that they transform our lives at the deepest core. Well, last week uh, we considered Paul's great outpouring of praise for all the spiritual blessings that he has, uh, God has given us in Christ. Uh, as Paul laid out for us, God's plan from eternity past to eternity future, all centered on Jesus Christ. How he chose us to be holy, how he adopted us as his children, how he redeemed us from our sins, how he revealed to us his plan and how he's guaranteed for us a great heavenly inheritance. And Paul was just full of praise to God, blessing God for the blessings he's given us. And we saw that that eternal plan of God was, was centered on Jesus Christ, the one through whom all those blessings come. God's great plan was to bring everything under the rule of Jesus Christ. And the goal of all that was to the praise of God's glorious grace. Well, having now praised God for all the ways that he has blessed us in Christ, Paul now prays for the Ephesians, that God may open the eyes of their hearts, and indeed our hearts, to truly grasp the fullness of God's blessings towards us. Uh, so our first thing we see this morning is Paul's model of praying with consistent thankfulness. Paul's model of praying with consistent thankfulness. Uh, verse 15 we read, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Notice those words, for this reason, at the beginning there. Uh, Paul prays for the Ephesian saints in response to God's gracious gift of every spiritual blessing that we considered last week. 
in verse 15, he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love towards all the saints. And that prompts Paul to pray. He thanks God because their faith uh, expressed in their love is evidence that they already possess all those spiritual blessings for themselves. Now it's worth pausing to consider that definition of a Christian that Paul gives there. Someone who has put their faith in Christ and expresses that faith in love for his people. A real faith in Christ will always lead to real love for other Christians. Elsewhere, the Apostle John writes this in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I think it's worth pondering if uh, Paul was to hear a report of our church. Would he hear a report of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating itself in our love for one another? Or would he hear a a different kind of report, a a report of, of factions and divisions and bitterness and slander? What kind of report would Paul receive? If our faith is real, it ought to be seen in real love for each other. Well, knowing the faith of the Ephesians is real, demonstrated by their love, Paul doesn't cease praying for them. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I wonder how often you uh, give thanks for God's work in other Christians. How, How often you say, God, thank you for your work in his life or her life, or in our church? How often do you also pray for God's continued work in other Christians? Thankfulness is to be a key mark of the Christian. For we have received so much from God, and as we see the evidence of God's transforming grace and work in those around us, it should move us to thankful prayer. And notice that Paul here, he doesn't just pray with consistent thankfulness for other Christians, but he also tells them that he's praying for them. And he tells them what he's praying for them. He tells them that they may be encouraged by these things and that they may have the same thankfulness and the same prayers that he has. It is a wonderful habit to tell people that you're praying for them. I don't mean that you tell people, I'll pray for you, and then you never pray for them. Uh, That sounds spiritual, but it's actually hypocritical, isn't it? I mean, to really pray. And when we pray, to tell them. And and so if someone asks you to pray for them, then then do it immediately. And then write it down on your prayer list so that you will be reminded to pray later as well. And then once you've prayed, tell them that you've prayed. And tell them what you've prayed. It will be very encouraging. Consistent thankful prayer for God's work in the lives of other people is to be a key mark of the Christian. Well, in verses 17 to 23, we find the contents of Paul's prayer. We're at point two, praying for spiritual discernment, praying for spiritual discernment. Now, the essence of Paul's prayer in these verses is that they may know. Have a look at verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians will know God better, that they'll be enlightened. Now, of course, in a very real sense, the Ephesians sense they already know God. They are believers. They've put their faith in Jesus and they're demonstrating it in their love for other Christians. But Paul prays for these believers that the Holy Spirit will so work in their hearts that they really know, that they truly grasp in their hearts all that God has done for them in Christ. He's praying here, not just for an intellectual knowing, but a real experiential knowledge of God that works itself out in all of life, that, that, that brings real hope, that brings real transformation. And Paul knows it's the kind of, of, of knowledge of God that, that only the Holy Spirit can bring. He prays that the spirit of, of wisdom and revelation may bring this enlightenment to their hearts. Uh, in, in the UK, I'm told, many times Christians speak of, of praying in the scriptures at the end of a sermon or a Bible study. I take what they mean by that is that they pray for God's help, not just to intellectually understand the passage that they've, they've been reading, but praying that it will make a real deep impact in the heart. They study the passage and then pray it in, pray that that passage will transform them. And, and that is a really good habit. I think it's so important because it is one thing to understand what a passage says, but it's another thing entirely to truly believe it and live it out. We need to pray for the Spirit's help to take the gospel word we find in the scriptures that it may truly shape and change us. Well, what does Paul pray that they may know? The first thing that Paul prays is that they may know God better. Have a look again, verse 17. He prays that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, the NIV translates it slightly simpler. He, it, he prays that the spirit will bring them wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. In other words, Paul prays that the Ephesians will know just how truly gracious and good and glorious God is, not just intellectually, but personally. Now, remember how Paul described God back in chapter 1 in that great hymn of praise. Paul praised God, verse 5, for his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And in verses 7 and 8, he praised God for the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And in verses 12 and 14, he praises God for his glory. Now, I think there are many times when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness and his grace towards us. Maybe we start to think he's not really good, he's not really glorious, he's not really as gracious as we read in the scriptures, because, well, things in our lives are not how we wish them to be. So Paul prays here that we would really know God. He, he, he prays for other believers that they would truly know and experience God, God as the gracious and good 
and glorious God that he is. He prays that they may know this gracious and good God personally, intimately, relationally. This momentous book, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer, was one of the most influential and outstanding Christian books of the 20th century. I still remember the profound impact that this book had on me when I first read it at university. And if you've never read this before, it's one of those Christian books that you absolutely must read at some point in your Christian life. And it's called Knowing God. And Packer writes this in one of the early chapters. There is a great difference between knowing God and knowing about God. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. Now that is a profound statement that deserves careful reflection. Do we really know God? Now, I don't mean know about him. Do we do we really know him? Are we sure of his grace, his goodness towards us personally? Are we enjoying intimate relationship with him? Uh, is knowing him personally and intimately in love and trust the goal of our lives? See, God wants more than just right doctrine. God wants more than just, doc than just ministry or, or church attendance. The goal of the Christian life is to know God, to have a relationship with him. And so Paul prays that the Ephesians may know God. Indeed, they may know him better and better. And he prays that the Spirit will bring them that knowledge of him. It's a wonderful thing to pray for yourself. Lord, reveal yourself to me in your word. Help me to really know you. It's a wonderful thing. To pray for others. So the first thing Paul prays is that we may know God better. The second thing Paul prays is that we may know our glorious hope. That we may know our glorious hope. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, in the saints. Uh, John Stott writes this, the call of God takes us back to the very beginning of our Christian lives. So Paul, Paul wants us to note the hope to which he has called you. And, and that, that calling is what we've already seen in chapter 1, where God chose us before the creation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before him, that we should be adopted as his children. God called us to be his, and, and he did it long before we called on him. And Paul reminds us, God's call in the past guarantees us a glorious future, a, a heavenly inheritance. He prays that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And last week we saw what that glorious hope, that glorious inheritance is. It's a place in heaven itself. For in the Old Testament, God redeemed Israel out of Egypt that they may receive the promised land as their inheritance. Now, of course, the promised land was in fact God's land. It was God's inheritance, but God graciously gave it to them, his redeemed children. And so God graciously gives us, who hope in Christ, an inheritance in heaven 
of course, heaven is, is, is God's inheritance. We are God's possession, but God graciously gives that inheritance uh, that we may be among that great gathering of people from every tribe, nation, language and people. That we may be in that new creation where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. What a glorious hope it is. And that is the hope to which we've been called. But Paul prays that we may really know our hope that we may really know what is the riches of our glorious inheritance, that we'll be sure of it, that, that we'll allow that hope to, to grip us and transform the way that we live our lives so that we anticipate it with joy and gratitude and, and we live for that coming kingdom as if that's what really mattered in life. It's such an important prayer. For it's true, isn't it? How often do we set our hopes on the things of this world instead of on the world to come? Because heaven remains for us just a, a concept in our minds that, that, that has no effect on our hearts. And so even though we believe in heaven, we end up living lives as if earthly things was all that mattered. And so we're still anxious and doubting as if our future was not ultimately certain. And we're still joyless as if the final defeat of sin and death was, was not going to happen at the end. We're still complacent as if our careers and comfort are more important than bringing the good news of, of hope in Christ to this world. See, we need to pray, I need to pray, that we may truly know this glorious hope that it will transform how we live now. We should pray that we may know God better and pray that we would truly know our glorious hope, our heavenly inheritance. Well, finally, we need to pray that we may know God's great power towards us, that we may know God's great power towards us. Again, John Stott writes, if God's call looks back to the beginning and God's inheritance looks on the end, then surely God's power spans the interim period in between. Now, Paul really wants to emphasize God's power here as he, he piles on the adjectives in these verses. He prays, verse 19, that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe immeasurably great power. Paul wants us to be absolutely assured that God is powerfully, mightily at work now in our lives. And that's so important for us to know, isn't it? Because well, so often we feel anything but that. We feel weak. We feel like we're struggling. So often the Christian life, we feel marginalized, persecuted by those around us. We feel fragile in our faith. We feel tempted by sin. We are beset by sickness and other uh, illnesses. We are, and ultimately, in the end, we're overcome by death. Power is not how we would often describe the Christian life. And so Paul wants us to know. He wants us to be sure of God's great, immeasurable power, which is at work in us, getting us to that heavenly inheritance. 
Now, in the rest of this passage, he explains what kind of power he means, and he has in mind resurrection power, the power which took Christ from dead in the grave and raised him and seated him on the throne of heaven. That's so verse 19, he says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So we see God's power in how he raises Jesus, ascends him to the heavens, and then places all things under his feet. Indeed, there is great power in the resurrection of Jesus. Think about it. On the cross, there he is mocked, tortured, killed. But in the resurrection, raised to glorious new life, Death is our bitter and relentless enemy that we must all one day face. Sometimes we succeed in postponing death a bit longer, but in the end we cannot escape it. It is, it is the ultimate example of our weakness and frailty and helplessness. But in the resurrection, God in his great power does something that no human being can do. He raises Jesus back to life, and not to die again. He raises him with a glorious resurrection body that will never die again, that will be immortal. And he raises him with such resurrection power that he's able to share his resurrection life with all who trust in him. That is real power. But not only was Christ raised from the dead, he ascended to the throne of heaven, to the power, place of ultimate power and authority. As he sits down at God's right hand, as God places all his enemies under his feet, so God fulfills his purpose for all of humanity. Uh, remember Genesis 1, we were created in God's image. We were to, to have dominion over this creation. We've all failed to do that, but Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, fulfilling what man was destined to be. Not only that, though, uh, these words recall the messianic prophecy of Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There is the power of Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, triumphing over all his enemies in total victory. He sits at the right hand of God, reigning in majesty. And verse 21, we're reminded that he is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I often encounter people who are afraid of the spiritual world, uh, afraid that uh, how their houses will be haunted by ghosts, afraid that Christians will be troubled by evil, evil spirits, afraid of being cursed by uh, unbelieving witches and so on. But here we're reminded that Jesus has absolute power over the spiritual world, over every rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. 
Now, those same words are used in chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians. There we read, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, spiritual powers are real. Yes, we are engaged in a spiritual battle against them. Yes, these spiritual powers would seek to harm us. But here is a key truth here in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus reigns supreme over every rule, every authority, every power and dominion. He rules in this age. He rules in the age to come. And so if we are Christian, we need not fear the spiritual world. Indeed, we need not fear earthly rulers. We need not fear the future. We need not fear anything. For Jesus sits on the throne of heaven. And God's immeasurably great power, which raised him from the dead and seated him in heaven, victorious over all, is at work towards us believers for our good. We'll see a lot more of that in our passage next week. But finally our passage ends by reminding us that having exalted Jesus in absolute power with all things under his feet, Christ is given to the church. Look at verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's slightly difficult verses to get our heads around here. The church is described as Jesus' body. It highlights the union that we have with Jesus. As we put our faith in him, we are spiritually united to him so that we are his body. He is our loving head. His headship over the church means he is the one who, who rules and, and controls the church. As we look out on the world, uh, God's powerful rule may not always be immediately apparent. But it ought to be clear in the church because the one who rules supreme over the universe is also the head of the church. And we're also told here that the church is, his, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, Christ filling the church, I think it means here that it, he exerts his influence and rule over the church. He's, he's bringing about his rule over everything in every way. But, but right now, the fullness of his rule is seen supremely in the church, his body. I think it ought to give us great confidence to know that the almighty king of the world is also the head of the church, powerfully at work for the good of his people, Jesus is raised as Lord of all and given to his church. So Paul prays that we may know God better. He prays that we may know the glorious hope, glorious inheritance to which we've been called. He prays that we may know God's immeasurably great power towards us who believe. Well, as we conclude... Uh, our final point this morning, praying like Paul. Praying like Paul. I think a quick review of Paul's prayer shows how different his prayer 
is to so many of ours. Uh, Paul's prayers are centred on Christ and the gospel, whereas ours are so often concerned with our physical needs and desires. Paul's prayers are so other person centred, whereas our prayers are so often very self-focused. Paul prays with consistent thankfulness, whereas our prayers are often very sporadic and thankless. Paul's prayers are saturated with God's plan, whereas our prayers are often so focused on our own plans. Imagine what Paul might have prayed here if he was us. Maybe he would have prayed that he'd be freed from prison. Maybe he would have prayed for the Ephesians, that they'd be happy and comfortable. Maybe he would have prayed that he and they would possess riches and honours and the pleasures of this world. But he doesn't pray for any of those things here, does it? Does he? Paul is so captivated by the gospel. Paul is so delighted to know God and the blessings of the gospel. Paul is so committed to the fulfillment of God's great plan for the universe that he prays for things much more important. He praises God for all the spiritual blessings he's lavished on us. And then he prays for spiritual discernment, for enlightenment, that we would truly know God, that we would truly grasp and be impacted by all these blessings that are ours. See what we see here? Head knowledge is insufficient without heart transformation. Head knowledge is insufficient without heart transformation. Head knowledge is important. We need to know God's plan. We need to know his blessings. We need to know what Christ has done. But until those truths arrest our affections and transform our hearts, God's word has not yet finished what it is designed for. We'll never live the way God wants. We will never pray gospel-saturated prayers like this until the Spirit of God brings these truths home to us. We'll never live with the assurance and joy and passion and hope that ought to be ours as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having considered what this passage means, let us close by praying. Let's pray using the words of this passage that our glorious and gracious God may indeed open the eyes of our hearts that we know him and know what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Glorious Father, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, please give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your inheritance for us, and the immeasurable greatness of the power you worked in raising and exalting Jesus and now work in us. We pray this to the praise of your glory. Amen.